Every great story has an arc. Uh, Tragedies end down and comedies end up. And the typical modern story that you might see maybe in the movie theaters today, you come in, you get the context, the stage is set, there's some arc down, and then it usually resolves up. Uh, You establish the main character, show the conflict, and then resolve it. See if you can guess this one. A preteen's mom is killed. A dad is very overprotective as a result. And then we watch them kind of work through it and rise up and be united at the end. Finding Nemo. Of course. How about this one? An old man loses his wife. Young boy needs a father figure. Watch them figure it out together. Up. Very good. How about he's cleaning up a toxic planet, she's a slave to the modern system, Wally, okay, classic favorite, all right. And we we love the the rising up part, we love that. We celebrate the victory, we cheer, we clap at the screen, Uh, I literally clapped when Coach Denzel unites his high school football team and they win the championship, right? Left side, right, you got it. I I always get this huge smile on my face when Andy Dufresne escapes Shawshank Prison, right? And he's in the rain and he's, ah, you know, I love that. It's everything in me not to stand up off the couch and raise my hands up like that. And then, of course, when Ray slashes Kylo Ren. There's nothing like it in Star Wars uh, modern trilogy and all this stuff that's been built over the last few years. You see the heroine figure, the woman Jedi, right? Can I get an amen for the woman Jedi? I mean, this is awesome. So, but these are more than just stories. This is our culture. This is life, a reflection of life. And a lot of us in real life have an arc where the sage is set, there's a conflict, we go down, and we're all hoping that we rise up. Rising up. Back on the street, did my time, took my chances. I went the distance. Now I'm back on my feet. Just a man in his will to survive. So many times it happens so fast, you trade your passion for glory. Don't lose your grip on the dreams of the past. You must fight just to keep them alive. It's the eye of the... It's the thrill of the fight. Rising up to the challenge... Of our rival. Yeah, very good. And I'll rise up. I'll rise like the day. I'll rise up. I'll rise unafraid. I'll rise up. And I'll do it a thousand times again. And I'll rise up high like the waves. I'll rise up in spite of the ache. I'll rise up. And I'll do it a thousand times again. But see, this is not a moment. It's the movement. Where all the hungriest brothers with something to prove went. Foes oppose us. We take an honest stand. We roll like Moses, claiming our promised land. Later it says, we're going to rise up. When you're living on your knees, you rise up. Tell your brother that he's got to rise up. Tell your sister that she's got to rise up. When are these colonies going to rise up? We're going to rise up. Time to take a shot. Rise up. So we have it, movies and culture and singing and stage, but there is no rise without a fall. Can we agree on that? 
And that's just part of the inevitable, I guess, doom of it all. We all want to have a victory, but the greatest victories are from the ashes of defeat. There is no resurrection without a death. Point number one, rock bottom. Turn your Bibles over to Daniel chapter 5. We're going to cover Daniel 5 and Daniel 6 today. This is part 5 of a series that we've been doing on the book of Daniel. It's in the Old Testament. And it's only 12 chapters, but it's jam-packed, full of inspiration, full of challenge. And we've been hitting different themes as we've been working our way through the text In Daniel chapter 5, in verse 1, it says, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. It was a huge party. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Let's stop there. Do you catch the little reference there to the gods that they're honoring? Remember what the statue was made out of that we dreamt about and we interpreted a few chapters ago? Yeah, see, what's happened here is that yet again, the slaving nation and oppressive nation of Babylon, who has taken all these Jewish people captive and out of their homelands, has, after many miracles, witnessed God's power and is now forgotten once again. And here, I would argue, a whole nation hits rock bottom. Babylon's king Nebuchadnezzar is dead. This is 23 years after that. The next in line here is blowing it all away. And the Persian enemy, believe it or not, the archaeology and history on this is astounding. Basically, on the night of this party, and we can trace this down with all the historians, the night of this party that we're reading here in the Bible, the Persian army has already made camp outside the doors of the palace. And as we speak, as we're reading this text, probably at night, they are draining out the Euphrates River because the moat was basically so high, they used the river to basically protect the uh, inside of, of the fortress, of the city of Babylonia. And so what they did is they diverted, they dug trenches way upriver, right? And so the water level was coming down, 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 so that the moat would be so, so low that all the armies of Persia could come in and take Babylonia once and for all. So the next day, obliteration. So this night, the king holds his last party. And he's drinking out of the sacred relics that were ripped out of the Hebrew temple in Jerusalem. It's one thing to take someone else's stuff. It's one thing to take someone else's stuff that means something to them. It's another thing to disgrace them after you've stolen it. So that's what he's doing. He's partying it up. And said, oh, Yahweh, if you would have done something to me, you would have done it for the last two decades. But you haven't. So what now? And a few generations earlier, Isaiah predicted what would happen. You can jot it down if you're taking notes. Isaiah 21, verse 9. Look, here comes a man in a chariot with a team of horses. And he gives back his answer. Babylon has fallen. Babylon has fallen. All the images of its gods lie shattered on the ground. 200 years before Babylon would fall, Israel 
Isaiah, through the prophets of Israel, predicts its demise. And this is exactly what happens. And they finally hit. Babylon, the greatest empire of its time, hits rock bottom. Have you ever hit rock bottom before? Don't raise your hands. Or maybe you've, uh, you've been there, or maybe you've seen someone else hit rock bottom. Or maybe you see it coming. And like Isaiah, you can predict it and say, you know what? A couple of years, you better be careful. You're headed on a path to the bottom. And we read scriptures like pride before the fall, right? You know, that's what the yellow light is for, right? Not a, a lot of us don't drive, maybe anymore. But we understand the way the lights work. The yellow light is a warning, not a command to speed up, right? But that's debatable culturally, right? In other words, it's about to turn red. So get ready. It's a warning. Now, some people argue that the yellow is too short. Maybe you've been in that camp before. Doesn't give me enough time. Or it's just a ploy to ramp up red light running tickets, right? So it's short. Oh, red light. Oh, I got to give you a ticket. And now, you know, they just take a picture and you get it in the mail for your convenience. <laughs> Actually, the yellow light is perfectly timed between three and six seconds, depending on local traffic pat- patterns that have been studied, usually for many months before they uh, set these lights. And... Too short is not effective, doesn't do the warning, and too long, drivers actually get too used to it, and then they learn to ignore it because they're sort of numb to the yellow. So the Federal Highway Administration, Department of Transportation, has done all this research, watched thousands of cars, probably you're in one of them, and they're watching you. And basically, the point is, they're trying to make the perfectly timed warning to prevent you from dying. And this is God trying to create perfectly timed warnings in your life to prevent you from spiritual death. And God's timing is always perfect. And the window that he leaves open for us to change our ways when the yellow light is blaring and we see it is perfectly timed. And it's a warning that eventually things are going to turn red. And in verse 5, still in Daniel chapter 5, it says, Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched as the hand wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Let's stop for a moment. I love that the Bible doesn't leave out the good details. Here he is in all his kingly glory, drinking out of the goblets sacred from the Jerusalem temple of the Hebrews and saying, where have you been? Almighty God, my gods are in control. The God of stone, the God of iron, the God of clay, the God of gold, the God of silver. And then all of a sudden, God very subtly decides to choose. And and basically they've studied out Nebuchadnezzar's old palace. And there are these huge chambers. And they even are pretty sure they know the exact chamber that this banquet happened in. And it's a huge wall on one side. And it's covered in white gypsum. So any kind of black ink or anything like that would be uh, so contrast that you'd be able to tell immediately what was happening. And so imagine a huge, huge wall in the middle of a gigantic palace. And everyone's partying. And all of a sudden, 
And we're not going to get into the Aramaic of what was written, but basically, it's not good news. It's a red light. Your empire's coming to a stop. And this is rock bottom. And like I said, next day, kingdom obliterated, king dead and killed, with it an empire, and Persia takes over. You know, I was thinking about this story, and uh, it got me thinking about one of my favorite guitar players, Stevie Ray Vaughan. And for those that don't know, Stevie Ray Vaughan, widely considered one of the most influential electric guitarists in the history of music. B.B. King was quoted, I've said that playing the blues is like having to be black twice. Stevie Ray Vaughan missed on both counts, but I never noticed. In other words, a very high compliment coming from the blues master himself, B.B. King. Stevie Ray Vaughan won six Grammys. He's inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame, inducted into the Musicians Hall of Fame, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He uh, opened for Muddy Waters one time, and Muddy was quoted as saying later, Stevie could perhaps be the greatest guitar player that ever lived, but he won't live to get 40 years if he doesn't leave that white powder alone. Warning. He was arrested many times, jail, fines, conflicts, divorce. They said about him that a a quart of whiskey and a quarter ounce of cocaine each day was his diet of drugs. He was quoted as saying, I got to the point where if I try to say hi to somebody, I would just fall apart crying. It was solid doom. But to his credit, Stevie Ray listened to the warnings. He checked himself into rehab and he got sober. And he continued with AA right into his next album called In Step. And even the album title is a reference to what they talk about in AA, that the elevator's broken, so use the steps. I mean, just really paid homage to all the help that he got to get out of the cycle of addiction. And he was quoted as saying in 1988... I hit rock bottom, but thank God my bottom wasn't death. That was two years before he died in a helicopter crash. He was living on 24th Street in New York, a couple blocks away at the time, was doing a concert. Eric Clapton and a bunch of people got in different helicopters. They went up. The pilot misjudged uh, how high the peak of the mountain they were going over, crashed into the side of the mountain. Everyone died. And he died at 35. He never hit 40 years old. Now, it's a sad story. But one of the things I love about what Stevie Ray did is it never was too late. And it isn't too late for us to heed the warning. I'm proud of the fact that he decided, I want to get sober. I want to write music and and create in the way that God intended And not with this blurry vision that I've had for so long. And so he did. He had two years of sobriety. And made an amazing impact on this earth. But you know what? The story makes another point. You never know when it's going to turn red. You never know if it's going to be your fault or somebody else's. Life is just too delicate and too fragile. And we play around with the yellow light. Oh, it's going to go another second. It's going to go another second. But we just need to make the most of every opportunity that we have. Psalm 81, in verse 8, says, Hear, 
Hear me, my people, and I will warn you. If you would only listen to me, Israel. I can imagine that God up in heaven sometimes just pleading with us up in heaven, pleading, please hear me, hear me. I'm warning you. I'm showing you yellow lights. Would you just listen and obey? But we don't. In Isaiah chapter 20, consult, sorry, Isaiah 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 20. Consult God's instruction. And the testimony of warning, if anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. In other words, I'm warning you, slow down at the yellow. Because sooner or later, if you don't slow down, there's not going to be any light at all for you. Daniel now is an 80-year-old man as he's in this situation. 80 years old. He's paid his dues. He's interpreted the dreams. He's lived through many different eras. And now he interprets the writing on the wall because, of course, everyone forgot that Daniel interprets things like this. And so after all the astrologers can't do it, finally Daniel comes in and says, "Okay, let me tell you what it means. The empire is going to end. It's over for you. And he rebukes Belshazzar. Twenty three years since Nebuchadnezzar's death and many miracles that God performed, the king could have heeded the warning. But instead, he is killed the next day. It all turns red. And the empire dies with him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, it says, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. Whenever we read the Old Testament, whenever we look at these examples, it's very important that we in practice, here today, trying to follow God in 2016, take it to heart and say, how does this example warn me? You put yourself in the text. You throw yourself into Belshazzar's shoes. You say, man, have I been falling into that trap? Have I been arrogant in any way? Have I been worshiping other gods? Have I been doubting God's power? If so, am I seeing yellow lights? Because if I am, I better quickly turn before it goes red. And this leads in to the next part of our lesson today. Because rock bottom for us today, for us the living, is not the end of the story. There's a great quote from General Patton. And he says, success is how high you bounce when you hit bottom. So I hope you got some Tigger Springs built in to your spiritual gumption. So you can spring back into action. Bible talks about a righteous person falling multiple times, seven times, over and over again. But we're defined in our character by us getting up. J.K. Rowling says, rock bottom became the solid foundation on which I rebuilt my whole life. As a homeless person trying to figure out how am I going to make this work? And I think she's done pretty well, right? A couple little books about a guy named Harry Potter. Kurt Franklin says, may God allow us. or He says, God may allow us at times to hit rock bottom to show us he's the rock at the bottom. I thought that was well said. And so point number two, breakthrough. Breakthrough. Rock bottom. Breakthrough. Let's turn our Bibles over to Daniel chapter 6. I told you we're covering a lot of ground here, both chapters. We don't have time to get into all the nitty gritty details, but hopefully you're reading on your own and being inspired by the text. Definitely encourage you to do that. But here as we get into chapter 6, we'll start reading in verse 3 in just a minute. But the new king now, this is the king of Persia, Darius comes in. And he puts Daniel in charge of a third of the Persian Empire. So here we read in verse 3. Daniel is so distinguished 
himself, among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities, that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Add this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. And finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of God. Can we stop for a minute and appreciate Daniel, a politician that you cannot dig up anything on? All right. I mean, they went to the annals and the archives, every record, every Facebook post, every YouTube video, every recording, everything he ever wrote, every text message. They couldn't find a thing. Now, before we get high and mighty, what could I dig up on you? If I had a team of 50 experts at drudging up your past, and they had an unlimited amount of resources, could hack any email, could tap into CCTV and find all the recordings of all the conversations you've ever had in your life, would we find anything on you? Would anything pop up? I think we can appreciate Daniel a little bit more from that perspective. And we just thank Jesus that we're forgiven of all that stuff. But him, couldn't dig up anything. Exceptional, trustworthy, no corruption, never negligent, blameless, above reproach, nothing on his record. In fact, they had to make something up. They had to find something that violated his personal religion and make up a law about that in order to catch him violating the local law. So what do they do? The other politicians running a negative campaign <coughs> decide to, <coughs> excuse me, decide to convince the king and make a law against prayer. And in verse 10, roll down there with me in verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human ex except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? Let's stop there. Couple questions. Does Daniel know here that he's breaking the law? Yes, clearly. It says, when he learned about the decree not to pray, he went home and prayed. Okay, so clear. All right, next question. Does he break the law publicly as an affront to the face of those naysaying politicians? Ah, well, where does he pray? Does he pray in the public square? Does he pray in the palace? No, where does he pray? His apartment. He had a sweet apartment, too. Not many people had uh, upper levels. This wasn't an attic. This was an upper level, all right? He was rolling, like Park Ave, the whole deal. He was awesome. He was set in charge of a third of the kingdom. King was even thinking about putting him in charge of everything, like, like you know, Joseph with Pharaoh, that whole deal. So he was rolling, and so he went up to his upper room, and to get some circulation, they had the lattice windows, so he opened those up. 
And he did what he always did. He prayed. Next question. As an 80-year-old man, is this the kind of employee, after looking at all of his service to the different kings over the maybe 65 years of time of his life, is he the kind of employee that would kick, scream, and riot against the government? No. He always keeps it cool even when he disagrees, right? Another question. Does he break his personal spiritual routine? No, absolutely not. Final question. Does he look like someone who's afraid of what someone can do to him? Nope, not at all. So let me make a couple of comments. Some people have seen this passage as a justification for law-breaking. I know you would never have thought about that. Hey, wait a minute. He breaks the law. Now, let me just say a couple things. First off, if you're scouring Scripture to find reason to break a law, you might need to check your heart first about why you're looking, right? That's important. Why am I looking? Why am I trying to find this? Okay, second of all, the Bible is consistent from Old Testament to New. It says, keep the law. Keep the earthly, local law. Unless it breaks God's law. Consistent. Cross the board. We obey unless it means that we can't obey God. I love hearing about the couple of sisters and many of us who have gone abroad to serve other churches. And particularly, uh, we've got Carrie out in China right now, who is uh, basically in an underground church of nine Christians. That's their whole church. And it's illegal to be a Christian where she's at. She has to be very careful about what they do and who they talk to. And can't have a legal status church, why many of the churches in China are underground. And it has not stopped her from praying, reading her Bible, and doing what she normally does in her, spirit, does in her spiritual practice. But she's also shrewd, right? She's not going to jeopardize the mission by jumping around singing, Jesus is going to fix it in the middle of the street, right? <laughs> Granted, it's a great song, but not the wisest time and place. Jesus at times told his people not to say anything about his early miracles, particularly. He was shrewd about what he said to officials. He calculated his words. And he made sure to pay attention to what he said and how he said it. It's a good reminder for us to be shrewd, but also unafraid of what humanity might do to us if we practice our discipleship. But it's a fine line between rebelling against it all and being foolish And then being like Daniel, being shrewd, but uncompromising. And I think this is a breakthrough moment for Daniel. I think he has many over the stages of his life. But here, Daniel again gets down on his knees, on his old, bony, eight-year-old knees, and he chooses not to compromise again. I don't know about you, but for me, being a Christian for many, many years, I feel like even though the victories are amazing and I I love being a Christian and following Jesus and I see many miracles, I feel like every year it gets a little harder. It gets a little harder for me to fight back the doubt and have that incredible faith I did once as a young lad. I've got to fall back in love with Jesus over and over again. I keep looking at that scripture, right? So some of us have those anchor scriptures. We didn't have those when we were first learning about Jesus. We were just like, ah, and now we're like, ah, right? We have have to mature with Christ, but we fight for our faith. Here's Daniel. Has he had to fight for his faith? 
80 years of oppression, slavery, all that he had in the kingdom before that. In the Hebrew kingdom, he was entitled, he was royalty, he had whatever he wanted and could worship any way he wanted. And now, since a teenager taken captive, forced in a foreign land to witness and look at all this nasty, pagan, anti-God stuff. And over and over again, he decides, against all odds, with his life in the balance, I choose God. So I'm saying, no, 80 years old, we look at that, he's 80, he's done this all his life, of course he's going to choose the right way. No, I don't think so. I think it's harder. He knows the decree, and honestly, it's better now, because Darius was actually much better than Belshazzar or Nebuchadnezzar. He let all of them go back to their homelands. So now he's back. He's back in his place. He's back around his culture. They've been given a little bit more religious freedom. So this law comes out of nowhere, and I think it was harder for him. Nevertheless, that's just speculation. I think it was a breakthrough moment. A moment to climb out of the pit. And we have these moments as well. Sometimes these moments are obvious. Sometimes our breakthrough moments, they they hit us in the face. Like, here's your moment, right? You're being tempted to do something. Someone's putting something in your face. Someone's getting angry. All this stuff's happening. And and there's like this big boxcar left. Breakthrough moment for you. I know right now I can decide to do right or I can decide to do wrong. Breakthrough moment for me. Other times, more subtle, not really sure. For some of us, the challenge is to repent of a haunting sin or of an addiction or of something unresolved in our heart, in our soul that's been challenging us for a while. And we're in a breakthrough moment to repent, to decide. Some of us are in breakthrough moments to confess. It is time. There's something in the darkness that needs to come out. We need to shed some light on it. So we have a breakthrough moment. And right now we're even thinking, is this going to be it today? Am I going to talk about it? You know what? Some of us just need to make a decision for God unafraid of the earthly consequences and we have hesitated. We've been waiting for the yellow to turn red. We still have an opportunity, but we haven't taken it. It's a breakthrough moment for you. Don't delay. God is calling us out to listen to him and come running. Be brave. You can do it. Make the call. Say the prayer. Get open. God believes in you and he's waiting to accept you into his open arms. When you come to him, He's going to come running to you. He's going to help you through it. He's not going to wait there with the whip and the lash and whip you up and down because you finally got open. He wants you to grow. You probably have already faced a whole bunch of consequences, all the guilt and all the bitterness and all the resentment that you've been harboring in your heart. He wants to free you from that. It's your breakthrough moment. You know, this amazing young man. This man is married to an amazing woman, got a couple incredible kids. And he started coming to church a couple years ago. And uh, he was a student at uh, Mike's Dojo studying martial arts on the Upper East Side and quickly started getting a lot more than martial arts. Started coming to church, studying the Bible. Started getting really intense with it. He's got notebooks filled with scriptures and thoughts and just deep and intense trying to figure it out. What does God want for my life? And there were some breakthrough moments. Times where God said, it is time for you to come out of the pit. Time to transform. Time to let me do my thing. And the friends and family start seeing his changes, right? And you know how that goes, right? They start seeing you different. What is going on with you? 
Are you on like some new medicine? Are you talking to people that you what's going on? Why are you doing all this stuff? And then he starts sharing about what God is doing in his life. And you know, it's serious when people start texting scriptures to people, right? From someone who's never texted a scripture to somebody else, all of a sudden you get a scripture text. Then you know something's up. This is different. And you know, after these two years, we're very proud of this young man because today, Lewis is going to get baptized right after church. Right there. There he is. Proud of him and his whole family. And this is an example for us. Breakthrough moments. Not to wait any longer. So Daniel got down. He prayed to his God. He got arrested. He got thrown in the lion's den. It's pretty cool. There's archaeological evidence showing that the Persians kept lions in pits. And even more evidence that says that this became a method of execution replacing the furnace burning of Babylon. There's evidence for all this stuff, guys. And if there isn't, just wait. Something will pop up. In verse 19 of chapter 6, it says that the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. The king wished the best for Daniel. He loved Daniel. Daniel's great. So he had to throw him in the den. But verse 20, when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? I don't know about you, but do you, do you ask questions into an area where you don't think there's going to be anyone to answer? Like, do you ever just walk in the bathroom and go, hey, um, so how's it going? I like Darius. Darius has some faith right here. I think he's expecting an answer. And he gets one. Verse 21, Daniel answered, may the king live forever. No, that's a good answer. Darius likes that. Oh, I'm so glad you're not mad at me. All right. Verse 22, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions like we sang earlier. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. Verse 23, the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And we'll stop there for now. Breakthrough. You know, Daniel isn't the only one who gets a breakthrough moment after being thrown in the pit. You guys remember Job, right? Cast down, broke through, and raised up. I love what it says in Job 33. It says, God has delivered me from going down to the pit, and I shall live to enjoy the light of life. You know who else got thrown down? Jonah, right? thrown into the water, swallowed by darkness, the belly of a fish, and he prayed and he broke through. He had a breakthrough moment of faith. God, take me. And he was raised up. And he says in Jonah 2, to the roots of the mountains, I sink down. To the earth beneath, barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. You know who else got thrown down? Joseph. 
Genesis 37, who threw him down a pit? His own family. Ooh, family drama. But he had a breakthrough, actually several, some in jail. And in Genesis 50, 20, he says, you intended to harm me to his brothers, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. But you know, of all the people in the Bible who has the most in common with Daniel, let's put the clues together, all right? Listen to this. Betrayed by those who were jealous of his ability. When they tried to dig stuff up on him, they found nothing. They found no corruption. They had to rig the system to get him in trouble. An innocent man's fate sat in the hands of a reluctant leader. The crowd was calling for his execution. He was thrown down, buried, and rised again. Who's that? That's right. See, the story of Daniel, like much of the, New, or the Old Testament, is just preparing the people's heart for their Messiah. Jesus, who would absolutely hit the rock bottom, I would say death is the rock bottom, and then break through the seal and rise again. And at the end of Daniel 6, and this is where we'll close, King Darius, in verse 26, he starts issuing this decree. He says, in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. And he writes this decree. And it reminds me of Philippians chapter 2. And there will be an eternal decree. And in verse 9, it says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Let's pray. Father, as we recount this history, this incredible story of Daniel, once again, uncompromising in his faith, standing up for what was right, but doing it in such a shrewd way. We are called to repent ourselves. Some of us are at the rock bottom. Others are trying to climb out. Others are headed there. And Father, whatever situation we're in today for everyone in this room, God, we ask that you will show us clearly where we need to go. The decisions we need to make. That we will not Play around with a yellow light, but heed the warning. Be humble enough to get help, to get back into the Bible, to get the help from spiritual people right here who can help us climb out and back into the light. God, give us that strength. Give us that courage. Give us that humility. And Father, give us breakthrough moments where we can mark it down on our calendar. I know I've got several. I look back in my spiritual life and say, man, those are breakthrough moments. Moments where you helped me make a decision. Moments where you pulled me up out of the pit. God, we ask for that right now. Whatever the situation may be, we ask for your help. And God, thank you that today we can't help but be reminded of Jesus. For he was in the pit, the pit of death. He was falsely accused. He was betrayed. They rigged the system to get him in trouble. And Father, just like a lamb to the slaughter, he, he knew what your will was. He didn't fight it. He prayed that there might be a better way, but when he figured out that it was your will, he aligned himself with you. 
sweat, blood, and tears, went to the cross and died for our sins. God, as we uh, take the communion right now, as we remember the blood and the body, the bread and the cup, inspire us. And even as those emblems go down our throat, I pray that we remember, even in a physical way, what he went through for us. God, help us to be better for you. Help us to love you, to fall back in love with you again and again. And help us to imitate you and your son, for they are our best example. We love you and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.